0: Well, at different times, at different places in our lives, there are times when we have assessments or reviews, we have certain kinds of consultations done to try to figure out where we're going, try to figure out how we are doing in certain areas. For you that are younger, junior high, I think probably mostly in senior high, maybe starts in junior high a little bit. People will will, will meet with you at a certain point to try to help you to decide what direction to take in life, what kind of courses to take, what kind of interests you have, and, and how those things will align to sort of point you in a future direction. It's probably a guidance counselor or something like that that will come in and review which courses you should take and so forth in order to help you meet those goals. In post-secondary education, you're usually assigned some sort of a, a faculty advisor who's, who's going to periodically come and review those kinds of things and to work with you on accomplishing those goals and to be able to point you in the right direction to get there. Health-wise, we subject ourselves to reviews when we go to visit the doctor. When we're young, those sort of reviews are called the checkup. As we get older, especially as we get to certain ages... They're called a physical. Now, one of those is a little bit more invasive and thorough than the other one, but those family of physicians are assessing and they're reviewing your health, and sometimes they're going to give you instructions on how you could improve. Sometimes that includes prescriptions, and other times it includes those lovely words that everybody loves to hear, diet and exercise, all right? We also sometimes review things from a financial perspective. I was just chatting with someone at the airport this week as we were waiting, and uh, he was a business owner from somewhere else in Alberta, and he was traveling because he was, he was just thinking about diversifying into a- another venture. But he was telling me about how when he was busy and when things were going well, he, he never quite took the time to crunch the numbers. He never had to. Everything was just going along and, uh, and going along smoothly. But when things started to slow down here economically in Alberta, he had the, the time to review his, his overhead and his expenses and such and, and found that he was not being as efficient as he could be. And for him, that meant letting go of some people, some salespeople and so forth. Even personally, sometimes we, we take the time to review our financial situation, our finances and our investments and those kinds of things. Maybe we'll hire a, a, some kind of a financial consultant. Maybe we'll hire some kind of a strategist to help us with those kinds of things. And all of that is because we just want to be thinking about where we are heading and maybe how we could plan more efficiently or maybe sometimes to help us maybe reset our priorities. Well, whether it's education or it's health or finances, we, when it comes to those things, it's mostly us that has to initiate those kinds of assessments to see whether we're on the right track and to try to figure out whether we're heading in the right direction. But when it comes to our spiritual life or when it comes to our spiritual progress, there may come a time when God will initiate a review. God might look into our lives and say, give some thought to where you're heading. And when God initiates that kind of review, we would do well to listen to his instruction. You see, God isn't really interested in making suggestions. He definitely doesn't give us speculations where he says, try this, this may or may not work. His instructions, and especially when he suggests course changes for his people or his church, well, number one, they're always well-intentioned. They are for our good and for his glory, but they come to us as declarations more than they come to us as suggestions. So today, and Lord willing, next Sunday, we want to look at a time in history when God, we could say he made an appointment with his people to give them a reset on their direction, and especially on their priorities. This, we might call it, this divine assessment, confronts these people and us with the question of where we place our priorities. Or maybe a better way to put it, to what kinds of pursuits are your energies directed? And do those pursuits include God? We're going to be looking at a little book that's tucked into the Bible. It's the book of Haggai. Haggai. You'll find it close to the end of what is the first section of the Bible, the Old Testament. This little book has only two chapters, and we're going to look at chapter one this week. Take some time to find that if you haven't already. And just some background on the book of Haggai you'll see when we read chapter 1 that it includes a lot of dates. When we take those dates and compare those dates with the, the Jewish calendar and some maybe outside the Bible history, we can come up with an accurate time, a very accurate time of when this was written. These prophecies happened over a span of four months in the year 520 BC, 520 before Christ. So here's some quick history on what was going on in the 500s B.C. By the year 586, the people of Israel had been taken out of their land, had been taken out of the Promised Land, a time that we call the exile. And Jerusalem, which was the capital, of course, and the temple, which was in Jerusalem, had been basically leveled, basically destroyed. The people there had been taken out, other than a few, had been taken out into Babylon. And Babylon was eventually taken over by the Persian Empire. Well, in 538, the Persian ruler, a man named Cyrus, providentially allowed some Jews to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the Jewish temple, and eventually also the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And you can read about that period of Israel's history in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So they did come back, and by 536, they had laid the foundation of the temple. So it maybe took about a year or so after they had returned. By the year 536, the foundation was laid. But some of the people that lived there, some of their neighboring people, especially a group that we read about the Old Testament, the Samaritans opposed that rebuild, and pretty soon these people actually stopped the construction project. uh, project. They stopped building the temple. And so by by the time we get to 520, if you do the math, it had been 16 years. 16 years between the time that they started and stopped and the time that Haggai is written. So, here in Watasquin. If you remember, maybe three or four years ago, might be longer now, they were going to build a restaurant over on the south part of town, over by Walmart. Well, I'm not sure why they stopped, but if you were to drive by there, you can see that the foundation is still there, kind of getting grown in, not looking so good anymore. Well, you can imagine what things looked like in Jerusalem on a bigger scale after 16 years. So you have to ask yourself, what were the Jews doing during that whole time that they lived there in Jerusalem? Well, that's where we pick up the book of Haggai. And so, listen as I read chapter 1 of this little book. In the second year of Darius, the king, so Cyrus was gone by this point and a man named Darius was the king. In the sixth month... On the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and, on, and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, then Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet As the Lord, their God, had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. And then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the twenty-fourth day of the month, in the sixth month, In the second year of Darius. So I ask the question what were they doing during those 16 years that they were there in Jerusalem after they stopped work on the temple? Well, we start to see the answer to that, don't we? This, what they were doing or what they were not doing, is the reason that God interrupts, that God interrupts their non activity when it comes to the temple. Or as it is called here, this house. But it's not like they're just sitting around, is it? The house, the foundation, is sitting around. But the people we see here are are both saying something, they're communicating something, and they're doing something. As for the temple, look at the end of verse four. This house lies in ruins. You say the same words actually down in verse nine. There God says, My house lies lies in ruins. That's God's analysis of this situation. The house of God is just sitting there. And it's looking just like that foundation over by Walmart. Fenced off maybe. Maybe that wasn't fenced off, but, but grown in and abandoned. Or even worse, because of some of, the, some of the ruins of Solomon's original temple are likely scattered around there. So it's got a bunch of rubble there as well. Much of old building material. And so you've got the picture in your head. But this is also a sign of not just an abandoned construction project, but an abandonment of God's very presence, an inattention to God Himself. And it's into that situation that God speaks through His prophet Haggai. And it really is what I call a divine interruption. God's voice may have been silent for a time. He may have let them just keep on going, it seemed, to them. But it is no longer. The word of the Lord came by the hand of his prophet Haggai. But like I said, these people were communicating something and they were doing something during those 16 years. Here's what they're communicating. Look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts. And by the way, the Lord of hosts pictures God as a, a warrior, whenever you see those words. Some, something has aroused God to the point that he's, he, he's not coming as gentle, meek, and mild. He's coming battle-ready. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, here's, so, so they are communicating something, right? These people say, what are they saying? They're, they say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. You could paraphrase that to, to them saying, yeah, yeah, we're, we'll get to it, but not yet. This is parent, uh, if this is a parent talking to a child, we might call this delayed obedience. And you may have heard the saying, right? We use it as parents sometimes, delayed obedience is no obedience. <laughs> but they're not saying no. They are saying not yet. Here in Haggai, that communicates the fact that these people are busy with something else. And indeed they are. Look at verse 4. God diagnoses their activity by a comparison of their house with the house of God. Is it a time... Notice he uses that word time again in opposition to what they're saying, where they're saying it's not yet time. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? While this house over there lies in ruins. Here in verse 4 it just says dwell. So they're just living there. But down at the end of verse 9. You see that their own houses were actually a hive of activity. And took priority. My house lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself. With his own house. That was the issue. It was an issue of delayed obedience. And an issue of misplaced priorities. Paneled Houses communicates the idea of extravagance. Literally, the word, the, the word just means covering. So, so just in a plain sense, they were putting coverings on their houses while the house of God remained uncovered. But even more to the point, they were paying too much attention to their houses and no attention to God's house. Or to strip it down even more, they were paying attention to their own comforts and neglecting their God, the one who chose them, the one who actually gave them their identity as the people of God. They were involved in self-worship rather than worshiping God. They were hiring Fixer Upper, the Property Brothers, Home Makeover. They were hiring those people for their own homes, and they're neglecting the house of God. And so here's the issue into which God speaks. God, in his kindness, is not prepared to leave them there. He's come and he's redirecting their attention from being busied with their own houses and he's telling them to pay attention to what he's saying. He's asking them to think about where they are directing their energies. Each of you busies himself with his own house while my house lies in ruins. This is a question we have to be asking ourselves, too. What are we busying ourselves with? I will admit that this question got my attention this week. It forced me to really look at my own life and ask, what kind of time and attention am I giving to God? For these returning exiles here in Jerusalem, they probably started 16 years ago with great enthusiasm. They wanted to get going. They wanted to restore their identity as God's people back in the, in the promised land, the land of promise, the land of flowing with milk and honey that God had given them so many years before that. But when the opposition came, maybe first they had gotten a little bit discouraged, but after a while, they just forgot about all that and went on with their own merry lives. They started building monuments for themselves. They started going their own way. And we could say they just sort of blended in with the rest of the people there in the land. They just did what they did. They valued what they valued. In this case, their paneled houses, making sure they were comfortable, making sure things looked good, making sure they had the newest thing. They just fit in. They didn't look a whole lot different. And in the meantime, God's house was just sitting over there, no one, had paid, no one paid any attention to it. Are we ever guilty of that kind of mindset? We start with good intentions. Even early in our Christian life, we might be on fire for God. We're, we're all about His plans and His ways, and we're all about building His kingdom. But for one reason or another, that initial enthusiasm, somewhere along the line, gives way to apathy and inattention and putting an, enter, our energies then into other things. It can happen over a long period of time. It can even happen in the course of a week. You know, we might come to church on Sunday and be inspired and get motivated to live for Him. But by the time Monday or Tuesday comes, we're back to pursuing our own comforts and putting more panels on our own houses. So ask yourself the same question I asked myself this week. How much of your time and energy are you putting into the things of God reading His Word, you know, just even spending time with Him in prayer, meeting with His people, telling the people that you interact with about Jesus, serving others, etc. Are those things getting your best attention and energy? Are you building on your spiritual foundation and growing in your faith? Or is that foundation just laying there stagnant, getting no attention, maybe even laying in ruins? When you have time, discretionary time, where are you, what are you you slotting into that time? What is occupying your time? Or or maybe you could say, what are you preoccupied with? To help you break it down a bit, just take this past week. Take a day this week, maybe even a part of one day, and specifically, of course, the time when you weren't working or sleeping, maybe right after you woke up, or Or right after you came back from work? Have you got one? Now think of those as opportunities. Now what did you do with those opportunities? And was God any part of them? I just ask those questions because I think that's what God is asking these people when he says what he says in verse 5 and in verse 7. Consider your ways. Simple three-word challenge. Consider your ways. Think about your life. Where are you heading? And am I part of that, God is saying? And not only am I part of that, but am I there at the center of your life? Do your energies center around your worship of me? God's challenging them here to go from a place of self-focus where they're only worried about themselves to a place of self-examination. And eventually he wants to bring them from that place of self-examination and self-worship to God-worship. He starts that process by helping them see that the way they've been going about things has not made their situation any better. Notice that? In fact, it's made it worse. Look at verse 6. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one's warm. And I love this one. He who who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. All your wages are going into your savings bag, but that bag's got a hole in it. It's not staying. What's the point? They're working hard, but they're working hard at the wrong things. Their work is not amounting to anything of value. At least nothing of spiritual value. And this is where Jesus' words that that steward read from Matthew 6 apply. Do not lay up for yourselves, notice the self-focus there, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Because that's where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves can't break in and steal. And then at the end of that, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added to you. What is our treasure? What are we seeking to accumulate? What are we filling ourselves up on? And then ask yourselves, are those things fleeting or are they eternally lasting? And so God is telling these people to look back and to consider their ways. What have you been doing? Think about what you're building and what you're prioritizing. It's really a call for change, a call for, for them to move in a different direction, a call for repentance. But he uses those words again in verse 7. Consider your ways. Only now, he doesn't want them to look back anymore. He wants them to look forward. What, here's what repentance looks like. True repentance, true acknowledgement of wrong, true heart change will always show itself in changed behavior. And so he calls for them to acknowledge their delayed obedience, to acknowledge their misplaced priorities, but then he tells them what he's looking for. Here's the kind of action that pleases God. It's the kind of action that puts him in the center. He says there in verse 8, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. And later, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. How do we please our Lord? Our Lord. How do we glorify our God? By giving attention to Him, by worshiping Him, by not neglecting Him in order to build our own houses. Brothers and sisters, let's carefully consider our ways. Hey, maybe, maybe that abandoned foundation there on the south end of town can be a reminder for us every time we drive by it to consider our ways. Use that as a word picture. I mean, it's not being used for anything else. But here's God's warning. If we've been neglecting God, he will bring his loving discipline to bear down on us. That's what verse 9 to 11 say. Our misdirected priorities, our storing up treasure on earth, will not receive God's blessing. It won't. You look for much, it says there in verse 9. And behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? He answers the question, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, no produce. And I've called for a drought on the land and the hills and on all their labors. If we leave God out of our labors, out of our energies there will be no blessing on our labors. Let's give careful thought to our ways and really think carefully about what God, or what place God has in those pursuits. Mark Dever issues the challenge this way. He says, I quote, what would your life look like? What would your life look like if you got what you really wanted? What would your life look like if you got what you really wanted? You have a picture of that in your mind. Now ask yourself, would God be there? Is he at the center of your desires, or is he repeatedly neglected at the true center of your heart's desires? End quote. Let us assess our lives. And like I said, I know as I've thought about my own life, I have fallen painfully short. I have allowed other things, whether that be in my thoughts or in my activities, Or in my lack of prayer or not enough time in God's word. I've I've needed this interruption by God into my life. I've desperately needed this challenge and maybe you have too. Maybe some of you have taken inventory of your own lives and maybe you regularly do and you come out of this assessment looking good. You're doing okay. Well, praise God for that. Thank him for keeping you in his word. But if you needed this challenge, consider this to be God's kindness to you. God's grace in, in, in stopping you in your tracks. He's stopping you as you go about your way and saying, oh, wait a minute, hold on, my son, my daughter. Consider your ways. Don't just go on your way without me. Well, the great part of this divine interruption of God to the people there in Jerusalem is that these people listen to the word of the Lord through Haggai. That doesn't happen in all, in, in all of the minor prophets. Most of the times they disregard God and they don't listen to him. Here they do. Look at verse 12 again. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the, Jeho- the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. And then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, on the sixth month, in the second year of Darius The This is fantastic. The, the, The people heard the message, they heard the warning, they heeded the call to change their course, and it started with the political leader, the governor, and the spiritual leader, the high priest, and it filtered down to all the remnant of the people. This was a mass revival. What did they do? Two things. Verse 12, they obeyed the Lord. So that deals with their delayed obedience. And the people feared the Lord. That deals with their misplaced priorities. They now put God first, and the result is at the end of verse 14, they came and worked on the house of the Lord of, of hosts, their God. Notice the change. They went from busying themselves with, on their own houses to working on the house of the Lord. This is what true repentance looks like. They, they came under conviction, and then they obeyed. And then a changed heart led to a change in their actions, in their behaviors, in their priorities. All of that happened in a space of three weeks. It was an immediate change of direction, an immediate redirecting of their energies. It's amazing. This is the result that God is after when he comes to us and he asks us to think about where we're going. But let's not miss that last message from God there in verse 13. It's a short one. Other messages that God gives there in this chapter and in the next one are, are longer. This one is just four words, but it's an important one. It's actually an indispensable one. I am with you, declares the Lord. Before this, their actions and their words were saying that they could get by without God. Right? Right? But that proved to be futile. They had abandoned the house of God. They had neglected that foundation. It was just sitting there dormant. But now that they've considered their ways and changed their ways, God is with them. And he is there for us. And he gives, himself, he gives us himself. He will not abandon us. Even when we don't give him the attention that he deserves, he reaches out to us reaches down to us in grace and in mercy. He makes himself known and calls us back to him. He wants us to worship him. He wants us to give him the rightful place. This declaration from God that I am with you is a, is a reconciliation of a relationship. Maybe you're here today and you're listening to this and thinking, I'm not sure if I've ever even entered a relationship with God. Maybe today you've come under conviction of your own sin and of, uh, of your treasuring, of your valuing or hoping in something other than God, which is always something lesser than God. Friend, if that's you, then the way of repentance is actually the same as is outlined here. Acknowledge your sin, change, turn, and seek God. A wonderful thing about those words, I am with you, is that some 500 years after this, God came to this earth in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. We'll be celebrating that next month, or maybe even starting this month. But another book in the Old Testament says that He will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's called Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. And so if you consider your ways and then change your ways and then put all your hope in Jesus as the one who would rescue you from your sins by dying on a cross, you will be reconciled with God. You will be with God and God will be with you. God's grace and favor will be on you. And Not only will God be with you, but he will be for you. And if you're already a child of God, use this chapter in Haggai as a call, call for an assessment. Call for a review, a self-examination of your life. Where is your treasure? And if you find yourself convicted by that, make sure you don't silence the voice of God. Don't deafen your conscience. Don't say, the time has not yet come. Obey His voice. Fear the Lord, and with God's help, And with God's grace and and, and with the promise of his presence, commit yourself to make the necessary changes so that you will store up for yourself treasure in heaven. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, we thank you for showing us this morning that it is a good thing, that it is a profitable thing for us to consider our ways. For us to think about the direction in which we're heading. For us to think about where it is that we are giving our energy. Lord, help us to do this often so that we can arrange our lives around you it's our desire as, as people and as a church that you would take pleasure in us and that we as your church would seek to glorify you. And so we pray that you would remind us this morning to do this kind of review, as I said often. Help us not to just to go along, or, uh, along our merry way without you at the center of our lives. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that brings us conviction. Help us, we pray, to put you first. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.